0: Welcome to Specialty Stories. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This week, I have a great guest, a cytopathologist who talks about her journey to cytopathology, switching into pathology, kind of her third and fourth year of medical school, realizing that the path that she was on wasn't right for her. This week, we have Dr. Elizabeth Morency on the podcast to talk about cytopathology and much more. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Morency got interested in pathology to begin with.
1: So I always kind of knew I was interested in medicine because my dad was actually a family physician. And so I went into med school actually thinking that that's what I wanted to do. And it actually wasn't until towards the end of my like third and fourth year that I kind of realized I wasn't as interested in clinical medicine um, as I thought I would be as far as a career for the rest of my My professional life. And um, I remembered first year of medical school, a histology lecture that was given by one of the pathologists and being thinking it was really cool and never having heard about it and wanting to kind of maybe explore that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did a couple electives in my fourth year and I absolutely fell in love with it. So it was kind of accidental kind of um, later on in the game. Um, But I feel like a lot of people that go into path usually have that track it's pretty rare that somebody is like a child of a pathologist or just has knowledge of pathology before they go into medicine yeah. um, so it was like i would say my first um fourth year elective in pathology that i just i really thought it was fascinating being able to kind of be behind the scenes and see where the where these diagnoses are coming from and like how you know you work through um the material that you get um to come to like a final answer.
0: What was it about that rotation and what you were seeing and doing that was like, oh, this is, this, this really floats my boat.
1: I'm, I've always been somebody who's like really into like puzzles and really analytical. And I always want to know, I'm nosy, I guess you could say, and I always (laughs) want to know what the final answer is. And I just remember being, you know, on, on the wards as part of the clinical team sort of waiting on pathology to figure out what to do next so i was always kind of like what exactly are these guys doing (laughs) um you know why can't we figure out what's going on um so it was kind of like curiosity that led me to um explore that side of it and then i was like i want to be on that side like i want to be the one with the answers and sort of not running the show but helping to direct what the next steps are instead of sort of like sitting back and waiting and to a large degree, not really understanding like where it's coming from. And to this day, a lot of clinical um, physicians kind of just think it's somewhat of a black box, Um, (laughs) you know, because they have a lot going on. I'm not saying it's like willful ignorance, but they just don't know what exactly it is that we do. And they just trust, you know, they did their training, you know, they're going to say that it's cancer, they're going to say it's benign, they're going to say it's infectious, and we're going to go from there, move on without really knowing exactly the ins and outs. And I just thought the ins and outs were the most interesting thing that I had experienced in medical school. And I was like, I think I want to focus my, my career in this sort of more diagnostic realm.
0: Yeah. So you came in thinking more medicine, something, something more medically related based Primary on care. yeah, yeah ba- based yeah, on the experience absolutely. with your father for mm-hmm. for someone who is also going through this process thinking that but having doubts in their mind what mm-hmm. were some of the things for you that that really triggered it to go this isn't what i need and want i need to go looking for something else
1: i think you know i did internal medicine i did family medicine and i enjoyed the rotations but i realized that you know there's a huge difference between shadowing your dad and I had a really good experience with my pediatrician so shadowing your pediatrician and then also being the person versus being the person who has that primary responsibility and is taking care of 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 this patient you know with this healthcare team um and i just i just couldn't see myself doing it day in day out because i feel like a lot of clinical medicine there's only so much that you can control a lot of it also Deals has to deal with patient compliance and, you know, making sure that they follow up with the recommendations that you give, whether it be, you know, taking your medication or physical therapy or cessation of smoking, et cetera, et cetera. And I just didn't have the patience, even as a third year medical student, just experiencing this sort of clinical care role with patients who just didn't do it like the first time or the second time and i realized it really takes a special special human being and i have i you know i always idolize my dad i forever will but i gained even a new level of like respect and like appreciation for what he did he was a family physician for 25 years and i was like i couldn't even last six weeks so um i just realized my my personality also is a little bit unique because most people who go into medicine You know, go into clinical medicine. And so I feel like those of us who find that it's not quite working out for us, we just like to be in control. We like to know exactly what's going on. We want to have ownership of our cases from start to finish. And, you know, there's not really any other discipline in medicine that allows you to do that, like pathology does. So I was kind of lucky to find that because I was kind of between, you know, graduating and doing something else medicine adjacent or Um, I was also considering radiology because again, you're sort of like more on the diagnostic side and your communication is more with other physicians, um, who will listen to what you say, as opposed to patients who maybe think they know better or, (laughs) you know, promise you that they're going to stop eating McDonald's every day, but then, you know, you discharge them and then they're back within a week. So, um, just a combination of my personality and just seeing the realities of, Um, some of the challenges of primary care and realizing it just wasn't going to be a good fit for me. Um,
0: What traits do you think lead to someone being a good pathologist?
1: Sure. Um, Somebody who's very curious, uh, very inquisitive, asks a lot of questions. Like I said, I say it like jokingly, but like nosy, like you want to know exactly what's going on. Um, Very detail oriented. I mean, a lot of times, especially in cytopathology, even maybe even to a higher degree than surgical pathology. So you can sometimes hang a diagnosis on a single cell and a slide can have thousands of cells on it. So somebody who's very methodical and, you know, just almost, I don't want to say anal retentive because I feel like that has a <laughs> negative connotation, but sort of, you know, has those sort of qualities to them. Um, somebody who's really good at communication. And I think that's something that's, not commonly attributed to pathologists because people frequently see us as behind the scenes, you know, not antisocial, kind of just all about our slides and specimens. But at the end of the day, if we're not able to communicate to our clinical colleagues, what exactly our impressions are, what the final diagnosis is, um, in cases where we don't know necessarily the final diagnosis, but what our differential is and why we're ordering you know, this particular diagnosis higher than this one. Um, and also follow up things that we think that they can do that would help us, whether it be a repeat biopsy, or just, you know, continue to watch this person, we're not that worried. Um, so strong communication skills, I think are really important. And just being able to work um, in an interdisciplinary team, is kind of goes hand in hand with communication, a lot of times you're working with surgeons, you're working with nurse practitioners, you're working with medical assistants, you're working with medical students. So, being able to be comfortable in that setting and to help make sure that you're getting your message across clearly, um, depending on what particular setting that you're in. What it's,
0: uh, what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around the field of pathology that you have to debunk all the time?
1: Sure. Yeah, I you know, I was guilty of some myself. I mean, I think the biggest one, um, is that, you know, if you want to do pathology, it's like, you're basically a forensic pathologist, like you're CSI. I mean, to this day, when people ask me what I do, um, they're like, Oh, so you like hang out with dead people and you do autopsies all the time. And it's like, actually that's (laughs) one big part. And that's what our forensic pathologists do. And they do specialize, um, fellowship training and are boarded and that's what their role is, but that's one small part of the entire scope of of what we call anatomic pathology. Um, and so there's a lot more than that. Uh, we work in the hospital, we work alongside surgeons and, um, you know, gastroenterologists and pulmonary critical care docs. And, um, it's really exciting. We, you know, I think people think it's boring because we don't get to see patients and, while I always enjoyed seeing patients and that's probably one of the things and one of the most common things you'll hear about pathologists, what they maybe miss, um, from their, you know, general medical education days. Um, it's really exciting. It's really cool. Not only being able to diagnose, you know, what this shadowy lung mass is, but to even take it further in the era of You know, molecular diagnostics and sequencing genes and precision medicine, being able to tell the oncologists not only prognostic indicators like, oh, this patient, you know, has a good mutation versus, you know, a a mutation with a poor, um, you know, disease free survival or progressions free survival, uh, but also they're going to respond to this chemotherapeutic agent as opposed to that chemotherapeutic agent. So saving this patient who, depending on what they have, wasted time and, and potentially adding time to their life because of, of what it is that we do. Um another thing is, you know, I kind of alluded to it before that we're like antisocial. Like, oh, you went into pathology because you don't like to talk to people, you can't make eye contact, you, you're really shy. Um I think there are some people who maybe go into pathology because they do feel more comfortable behind the scenes. Um but I can, you know, speak for my department and say that we're very, we're very social. Um, we're very involved with the medical school. We're very involved um, with our clinical colleagues. Um, within the department itself, we have a very strong social um, sort of atmosphere, if you will, whether it's like potlucks at certain attendings houses, or you know, we went and did a paint and sip the other day with, <laughs> with some of the residents. Um, as part of the sort of ACGME wellness thing, but it's like, we do this stuff anyway. So sure, we can say that we did this as part of you know the wellness, um, whatever mandate. But um, I think those are some of the things that were like boring and quiet and just kind of like shoved in the corner. Um, but that's not at all the case. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So as a cytopathologist, right? You're board certified in cytopathology. What are yes. you doing diagnosing what are what are the team coming for you or to you with uh, with with what questions Mm -hmm. with what kind of specimens and and stuff like that
1: sure so um general sort of anatomic pathology tend to think about surgical pathology where you actually get pieces of tissue and you're looking at whole sections of let's say let's somebody has like a breast mass um The surgeon will excise the breast mass. We're going to do a core biopsy and you can actually look at the architecture of the tumor and sort of get a a whole two-dimensional slice of of the lesion that you're looking at. Whereas cytopathology, um, we're we're literally dealing with cells. Um, So same patient, uh, as opposed to a core biopsy, and we don't do this as much anymore, but you stick a fine needle in and you actually just aspirate the cells. So we can't tell you if it's necessarily you know, infiltrating and we can't tell you what the architecture looks like, but we can say, Hey, these cells are really ugly. This is probably cancer or these cells are super bland. It's probably just a benign neoplasm. Um, Another big part of cytopathology is looking at GYN specimens. So pap smears. Um, So a large volume of our material are um, pap smears from OB GYN. Um, We also get all of the fluids. Uh, So, peritoneal tap. So let's say a patient who's end stage cirrhosis, who has large volume ascites or fluid in their abdominal cavity. Um, The medical team will stick, you know, a needle in, do a paracentesis or a tap, take out all the fluid. And um, it's kind of, Depending on the scenario, sometimes they'll do serial taps and it's more therapeutic than diagnostic, but they'll usually still send us um, a sample of the fluid. And we just basically look to make sure there isn't anything infectious going on or anything neoplastic, like if there's a concern for, you know, liver cell cancer or some other um, primary somewhere that might be causing this abnormal accumulation of fluid in the belly, um, And then the third part, so it's like kind of three main parts. So it's like gynes, pap smears, fluids, whether it's from the lung, the abdominal or pelvic uh, cavity, and then um, sort of deep biopsies. So we do superficial aspirations of like palpable lesions, um, usually, you know, in the skin and soft tissue and then head and neck. So some, some places here, we pretty much defer to interventional radiology. Um, but where I did my um, fellowship, we actually did a fair number of thyroid aspirations ourselves with and without ultrasound guidance. We actually have a clinic here that our fellows participate in where they have the opportunity to do FNAs themselves of salivary gland and sort of head and neck lesions. Um and then the deep biopsies are things like the person has a pancreatic mass. Like, do we think it's cancer? So the gastroenterologist will go in and do the biopsy and then they'll send us the sample and we'll make the diagnosis. So those are sort of the three major categories. But it's a lot of sort of squirting cells on slides and making the diagnosis from there.
0: But but in some places, it sounds like you can go out and interact with the patients and actually do the biopsies yourself. Absolutely. That's awesome.
1: And I, lo- I love being able to do that yeah. um, because, you know, I do... Miss that aspect of of medicine and being able to see, you know, the patient themselves and, and take the history and literally put your hands on the lesion of concern and then be able to tell them within a matter of minutes what our preliminary impression is. Um, there's no other specialty that can really do that. So I think that's something that's really cool about cyto. However, like I said, a lot of that has been taken over by interventional radiology. Yep. Um, but depending on where you are, and I feel like at a lot of sort of um, non-academic or outside sort of community practices, the cytopathologists will FNA like everything. And they have ultrasound guidance training. So they can do, I mean, they won't do something that requires, um, you know, like heavy sedation or like a really deep biopsy. We defer, you know, to the specialists for that because they are associated with, you know, relatively high potential complications, but um, sort of superficial and like intermediate deep biopsies. Um, yeah, we are trained to do that as part of our... Um, fellowship training so awesome we do every now and again get to see patients too <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: what does a typical day look like for you
1: so it depends kind of on what uh service i'm on um but usually in academics i try and come in in the morning and let's say i'm on fluid so i'm on non-gyne fluid so these are the specimens that come from like a patient who let's say has a history of lung cancer and now they have pleural effusion or an abnormal collection of fluid around the lungs. And the clinical team has aspirated the fluid, and basically we get a series of slides um, from specimens like that. And so, um, if I'm teaching, I usually come in and do a, di- a didactic lecture. And so, we kind of break it down by organ system. So, one day somebody will be talking about breast cytology, another day you'll be talking about benign lung, so on and so forth. And then the residents have the opportunity. Um, and fellows to preview the cases that are coming out for the day. And so usually I'm just sort of catching up on emails or working on other projects. Um, And then we sit together with the resident and kind of go over the cases. And so depending on their level of training, um, you know, some have looked up everything, have written their impression, and it's like, okay, I agree. Next case. Others, it's their very first time on Cyto, So it's like, okay, this is a mesothelial cell, like just the basics of like identifying what it is that they're looking at. Um kind of do that throughout the day. Um, there's always different lectures and conferences. Um, but usually we're finished as far as sitting with the um trainee. Around early afternoon, and depending on how thoroughly you went over the cases, you can sometimes just release them at that point. Just officially sign them out and send them out um, to the clinicians. Other times, if you kind of went through quickly with a more senior resident, you kind of give the slides another quick look and sign them out. But depending on you know if it's like a moderately heavy day or kind of a typically heavy day, you're you're pretty much done with sign out around like I'd say three four o'clock. And then the rest of the afternoon, again, I mean, we're all very involved in, you know, medical school teaching, mentoring, um, all of the different committees committees in the hospital are going to be, um, are going to have people from pathology who are uh, members. So things like the quality committee, um, education committee. Uh, so just preparing for, you know, those, those meetings and lectures and then different things. But I think that's like pretty much what a typical day is.
0: Why did you decide to stay in academics versus going out to the community?
1: Sure, I actually did not plan to do that. I was trained really well, though, in obviously two pretty um, highly regarded academic institutions. And at both places, my at some of the attendings I worked with, who became mentors, who I still am very close with to this day, were like, "No, you, you should. You're too good of a teacher." you know, I think there's, like, this fear and this, like, insecurity, like, oh, do I really know enough to, like, teach other people that I I had and then a lot of junior faculty going into academics kind of, like, struggle with, Um, but thanks to, you know, the experience that I had getting to teach as a fellow, like, teaching residents and working on projects with um, other academic pathologists, I felt like it would, it would be a shame to not at least give it a try not to talk myself out of it before I even saw what it was really like. Um, so, and it was that coupled with the fact that I came to Chicago, uh, to do my last fellowship and I absolutely fell in love with the city and it was kind of like only academic spots were open. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. And I really want to do it here. And there was a close sort of, um, back and forth and a lot of communication, consults, everything between where I did my fellowship and Northwestern. And so, um, you know, I applied, I interviewed and I absolutely fell in love with the department. Like it just wasn't from the other side, it wasn't as scary as, as I thought it was going to be. And I realized like, I, I do have something to share. I, I do, um, feel like I can contribute and I'm, I'm not just like sort of sneaking in the back door. Um, And it's been great. I do love teaching. Um, I think that's sort of the foundation of academic medicine. Obviously, you want to be productive. You want to uh, publish and and be involved in projects. You want to be in medical education. Um, But day to day, you have the opportunity to teach residents and fellows and medical students, which is probably one of my favorite things, because I never want a medical student who's potentially interested in pathology to not have real exposure to it until their third or fourth year, like I did. Um, obviously it, it turned out fine. And the nature of pathology still is that, you know, you don't need to have like a million publications or, you know, all of your electives done before you submit your, your ERAS applications. Although it might be a little bit different now. Um, but it's still nice to know earlier on than later that this might be something that I would want to do. So yeah. Um, yeah, the combination of those things got me in and just really enjoying it has kept me here um, to this point.
0: Do you think you have enough time for life outside of the hospital?
1: I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And I think that, and not to say that we're not really busy because we are super busy, um, especially for pathology. I mean, depending on where you're at, pathology can be a pretty like, you know, eight to five sort of Um, weekends, mostly free type of place. That's not necessarily the case at the bigger academic institutions, but there's still, at least, and I can only speak for myself, plenty of time um, to have a life outside of of the hospital and outside of your clinical and um, academic responsibilities. And I think that's a big part of the reason why I wanted to stay in Chicago, because it's such a great town to live in. Um, especially somebody who wasn't from here and it was all completely brand new to me. So I I absolutely think that path is a great uh, lifestyle
0: field as well. What does the training path look like to become a cytopathologist?
1: Sure. So you do um, four years of general uh, anatomic and clinical pathology. Although if you're yeah, I feel like that's, that's pretty much you want, what you want to do, APCP. You could theoretically just do AP only, which is three years, but that's generally not encouraged because if you do go into um, community practice or private practice, they're going to want you to have that clinical pathology training. So it's more like lab medicine stuff, like microbiology, clinical chemistry, blood bank. Do I use any of that now? No. But if I were to go out into the community, am I glad that I had it? Yes. So typical um, route is four years APCP. And then it's one year of cytopathology. Um, and then you sit for the boards and then you practice.
0: What does residency look like? A lot of, a lot of students are dreading residency with how hard it is and how, how right. uh, much lack of sleep there is. Is pathology maybe a little bit easier, a little bit harder? What does that look like?
1: yeah, I think pathology is definitely um, a little bit easier than you know, the sort of standard internal medicine or at the farther end, like surgery. Um, you still have, you know, a good amount of time to sleep. For the most part, your call is at home. Um, that said, it is super challenging because you just don't get any or very little pathology exposure or training in medical school. So the amount of material you have to learn is just, it's huge. It's kind of like you're starting completely blind. Um, so that, that's, that's a little bit intimidating, but I feel like most pathologists in general are pretty easygoing people. Um, you know, every now and again, you might have somebody who's a little bit more of a, you know, old school and, and will be like, Oh, why didn't, why did you gross this this way or, or whatever, and make you a little bit more nervous at the time of sign out. But, um, it's not, it's not too, it's not too bad. It's rigorous in the sense that the learning curve is just super steep. But once you, I I feel like I started to feel really comfortable by around second year, you've done a couple of surge path rotations. So you know how to gross, um, the majority of, of, of sort of bread and butter specimens. Um, and then also sign them out um, you've done an autopsy rotation or two. So you feel somewhat comfortable with that. So then by second year, you can start to think about, okay, what am I interested in as far as subspecialties? Um, and then based on that, okay, I want to work on projects and let's say you're interested in gynecologic pathology. So I want to look at uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, or I like GI. So I want to look at, you know, those types of specialties. Um, and then, you know, third and fourth year, um, you get a little bit more responsibility. You, you know, I can speak to the experience here at Northwestern, you're sort of considered a senior resident at third year. So then you're, you kind of take on some of the responsibilities of helping to onboard and orient the first year residents um, while continuing to work on your projects and building your CV. You're also interviewing for fellowship because now, just because of the way that it is, fellowships tend to fill two years out. Um, So you kind of have to know by the end of second year what you're interested in, which is kind of unfortunate because you know you've only had 2 years exposure but that's just sort of the nature of the beast um we are in that sort of scenario in cytopathology here at northwestern we're going to be interviewing for 20 i don't even remember now i think it's 2022 23 the next time around because we've already filled for the next 2 years um and then once you have that done you know fourth year is pretty much studying for the boards path boards are Probably one of the most challenging of all specialties, just because of the breadth of information, especially if you're doing anatomic and clinical. Um, but I feel like a lot of programs are really good about making sure you have your heavier rotations earlier on so that you can do lighter rotations and even just have dedicated study time um to take your boards and then that's kind of
0: for the for the osteopathic medical student listening to mm-hmm. this, do, do you mm-hmm. see any negative bias towards the DOs who want to be cytopathologists?
1: Not at all. Not at all. In fact, we have one of our in-house residents who's a DO student is going to be uh, a cytopatholo- cytopathology fellow in two years. Um, and he's great. And we love him. So there's definitely no negative perception of Do's or like Caribbean or whatever okay. um, sort what, of alternative pathways.
0: What do you wish the primary care providers knew about what you're doing, Dane and day out as a cytopathologist, to help you with your job?
1: Yes, to all of my clinical friends listening. <laughs> like, how much time do we have? Um, I think the most important thing, and I, I've been we've been somewhat spoiled because our clinicians are pretty savvy here, but that's definitely sort of the exception, not the rule. Um, just to have an understanding of the concept of turnaround time. So like if you do a biopsy on Tuesday, because of the nature of of grossing the specimens, it's basically describing the specimen, embedding it in paraffin and cutting it, just the whole processing period. It's not gonna, the slide isn't gonna come out until Thursday or whatever your lab TAT process is at your institution. And so it's like, don't start calling, don't start paging, don't start emailing, don't schedule your patient's, too prematurely and say, oh, okay, I understand it's not coming out, but we're, we have the patient in clinic right now. Um, so just educate yourself on just the basics of the turnaround time for a, a biopsy, which is usually two to three days, and a major surgical resection specimen. Um, so going back to breast, so like a breast biopsy, again, if it's done on Tuesday, it'll probably be finalized unless we have to do any sort of additional to chemical stains or fish or whatever uh, Thursday. And then if you do a mastectomy or a lumpectomy, you know, it's like a week. Um, so that's helpful. I think um, having an understanding of what we mean when we say we need to do additional studies. So let's say it's a breast biopsy and we're concerned for potential invasive cancer, but it's not obvious. And we have to do Something called as an immunostain that can show either the presence or absence of sort of the protective lining cells that keep sort of incipient carcinoma or cancer from being invasive. If they're gone, then we can make that call and call it you know minimally invasive cancer. Or if they're still present, we can say you know it's confined. It's still um, in situ carcinoma, but that takes an extra day. So just having an understanding of that again, these are things that we use like pretty frequently, but we still we'll get the calls from either the radiologist who did the biopsy or the oncologist who's seeing the patient, um, after the fact. Um, so that would be really helpful, um, to our surgeon friends, um, uh, an understanding of how frozen section works. So frozen section or intraoperative consultation is when you're evaluating something with the patient on the table. And usually it's a margin. Or it's a question of what is this tumor? Like how aggressive is it? How big of a margin do I have to put around it? Um, Again, we can't just lay hands on the tissue and say what it is. We get the tissue, we process it, we get a slide. We have a 20 minute window to do this. So it's like, don't start calling before the 20 minutes. And if you send us five margins at the same time, you have to understand that we may need more than that five minutes. Um, So just the basic pathology, like processing and understanding that when we say we need more time, it's not because we're trying to hide the diagnosis or keep it away from you. It's because, you know, our responsibility at the end of the day is to the patient. So we're not going to be, we're never, we're never going to feel, and some people do, unfortunately, but I personally, and I try to tell my residents and, and my colleagues don't feel pushed or bullied to make a, a bad call or a premature call because you've got somebody leaning on you because you don't feel like you have enough time to do that extra stain that would make you go from maybe 90% sure to 100% sure. Um, so, to just be understanding of what we do, have just a basic intro level, like 101 level understanding what pathology is, um, and to just work with us, I think, and to communicate. Um, you know, let us know. Okay, the patient is coming in. There are certain things that we can sometimes do to, to move the process along. We can prioritize things, but to try not to put us in a position where we're rushing, because pathology is, is very challenging um, inherently, and so it's like you don't want to put any additional weight or like pressure on us that might make us, you know, miss something or overcall something. Um, so I think that's sort of the majority of what I would want to share.
0: <laughs> what would you go back and tell your pre-pathology self about pathology and cytopathology and where you are now? It's an interesting question.
1: There were definitely times where I, especially early on in residency, kind of second guessed pathology. And I was like, you know, I went to medical school to take care of patients. And now I'm, I'm wondering if if I really made the right decision. And to just say to believe in yourself to work hard, read more, that's probably one thing that I didn't do, and I still am working on incorporating into my like daily life, just you know keeping up on the literature and um just the importance of being having a great clinical history um having a great knowing the radiology and just being super prepared. I mean, I can remember some of the sign outs where I kind of showed up and I just did not have all my stuff together and just feeling really bad. And now being an attending and sometimes having the same thing happen, just impressing upon the, the, the resident or fellow, how important it is to have to be prepared to know about the case that you're dealing with. Um, as far as, you know, the recent literature and also you know, if it's something complicated, if there's something in the neck, where exactly in the neck is it coming from? Did you look at the radiology? Did you look at the the ENT note? Have you talked to the clinicians? I mean, we have a great sort of open communication between a lot of our clinicians. So um, just stick with it. Always, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. I think um, something that I, I actually work with a group of medical students and one of their biggest things is I don't want to annoy my preceptor. I don't want to annoy my attending. I don't want to annoy, you know, the person I'm signing out with. And it's like, it's not. The more questions you ask, the better. So, you know, don't be afraid to be quote unquote annoying because that's what we're <laughs> here for. We're here to teach you. We're here to like answer your questions because a lot of times you help us. Yeah. Some We miss things. And so you're, you know, I'll have a resident ask something like, we will be signing out a kidney, like I'm on GU, we have a nephrectomy specimen and they'll say, oh, you know, I didn't notice an adrenal. Cause some, depending on the surgery, if they do a, a total nephrectomy or radical nephrectomy, sometimes they take the adrenal or leave it. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I had looked at the note and they, they did it. And I actually didn't, <laughs> so I was like, but let's just like, look at the op note. And they did in fact um save the adrenal. So they just took the kidney. And I was like, yeah, that's that's what I thought. But it's like I completely could have potentially signed it out. Not no mention of the adrenal. It's like still in the bucket or something, which is a huge, huge deal. Um, So don't be afraid. That's what we're here for. Questions. There's no dumb questions (laughs) really in pathology and medicine. There really are.
0: yeah and i I would maybe add a small little asterisk to that because a lot i hear this a lot from other attendings too is is is, is, we seem to be in a culture where because google's at our fingertips a lot of people Mm -hmm. aren't using our resources and they're like oh the attending's right there let me just ask this question when you could have done a little bit of research before and then say hey whatever i i i was reading about this and I still have a question about that. Right. And then it's like, okay, come informed. And then let me know that you've, you've put in some work so that you're just not being lazy. 100%.
1: I like that, that, that little caveat, like show me that you've taken some initiative. And a lot of times you're teaching me something like I haven't read every article so it's like (laughs) oh there was a new thing in ajsp like fantastic now i'll go and reference it myself because that can affect my clinical practice so i really like that that point that
0: you made what do you like the most about being a cytopathologist
1: oh my goodness i mean so we're the fastest as far as coming to a diagnosis of anybody so even within the realm of pathology um and sometimes that bites us in the butt but Um, When we work with the interventional radiologist, which is probably one of my favorite um, things about cytopathology, we can literally give a diagnosis on on anything within minutes. Because what we do is uh, a lot of times we go down to make sure the specimen is adequate. In fact, we call it adequacies. So let's say there's a patient with a lung mass and... you know, they want to know, A, what it is, and then B, how we best triage a material, because a lot of times they can't get a ton of tissue. So they want to make sure that it's going to the right place. And so we can tell, you know, the clinician who a lot of times will page us, they'll say, hey, we have a patient we're sending down, we're concerned about small cell, we're concerned about lymphoma, we're, we're concerned about primary versus metastatic cancer. Um, Could can you give us a prelim? And it's like, we actually can. And it's great when, you know, it's a slam dunk they have a history of colon it looks like colon it's colon we're done um not so great when we're like it's really ugly it's tumor but i can't tell you any more than that but even then it's like at least we know we have diagnostic material you know we can send this to for next gen next gen sequencing see if they can be eligible for trial we're going to make sure we have tissue to do immunostains to see if it's lung primary or if it's coming from somewhere else um we can send it to heme and put some in flow cytometry to send you know for those markers um, so i like just i like having all the answers and we don't always have all the answers but i like have, you know being in a position to potentially get things moving um, that much quicker than you know having to wait for that like extra processing day or that sort of thing and then in the instances because you know they don't always listen where the person the surgeon or whoever schedules the patient you know, for, sometimes it's even in the most like insane cases for like surgical resection, like two days after the biopsy, being able to actually say, okay, this is what it is. This is probably the surgery you should do. Um, although there are instances where it's like, we're going to need more time. You're going to have to cancel the surgery and like push it back. So being able to just kind of be on the ball and, and give that information, Um, I was always interested in, um, women's health and I love that, you know, working, looking at, at GYN and, and doing projects with the OB GYNs and just trying to, um, improve screening adherence, um, improve, uh, patient education, improve the, um, synergy of, you know, high risk HPV testing, which is a molecular test with our sort of diagnostic under the slide sort of testing, um, feeling like I'm, I'm helping to to make a difference in that realm, even though it's not on the clinical side, it's more on the sort of research and diagnostic side, I think is pretty cool. Um, I just, I don't know. And I like, I like that it just in pathology in general, we get to, we get to, I mean, you really are the doctor's doctor and I like, You know, having getting to have those relationships with, you know, the ENT surgeons, the interventional radiologists, the gastroenterologists, the pulmonologists. It's just a really cool position to be in because they kind of look to you for the final answer. And you're kind of like, yeah, that's right. Respect what I do. (laughs) So it's just, it's, I feel very lucky that i found it and i'm really happy and and you know it's constantly changing you know i I talked about how the boards are so challenging because every day there's like a new entity being described or a new diagnostic study and and now with you know precision medicine we're we're literally sequencing things down to one like point mutation um so it's just there's always more to learn i mean that goes for medicine as a whole but i feel like in pathology it's it's even more heightened and more uh, significant. And it just, you're just never bored. You're never like, okay, I've, I've finished all the books. I've read all the articles. There's just <laughs> always something new to learn about. And there's always something new to investigate. Yep. So
0: I think that's pretty cool. And And yet here we are with medical school crunching down our two years into 16 months and it's just crazy. Oh. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about technology for a second, because I think with pathology and radiology are the two biggest fields where technology is trying to come in and, and help yes. and change a lot of things. I know Google has a huge initiative Ooh, yes. using kind of their visual recognition algorithms to go, oh, look, in this picture of a slide. I see these 10 cells that they can they can spot 10 cells in a split second that would have taken you a couple minutes to look through a whole slide. Ooh. Do you feel like this this technology coming in is going to help you diagnose better, diagnose more accurately, accurately diagnose faster or is there potential where this is going to take over the world?
1: so it's so funny and so timely <laughs> that you asked this question because we actually had a guy who trained at Google whose background is informatics come in and we're actually, I think we're going to hire him. Um, cause that's, I mean, that's just the wave, yeah. um, and the direction that we're going. Um, and at one point in his lecture, which was fascinating, he said, okay, raise your hands if you think, you know, we're coming for your job. And I was like, "Me? am <laughs> kidding. Cause he showed us, you know, what these programs can do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but then he talked me off the ledge and and showed how, you know, at the end of that you still need you know a human, you still need pathologists, you still need people with those four, five, six years of training, yep. um, and it really is an, a helpful diagnostic adjunct. It's it's there to help um, us be more efficient it's there to make sure that we don't miss these, you know, micrometastases. I mean, I feel like that's the classic example. So a patient with a history of, of breast cancer, lobular, which is a particularly sneaky, insidious type of tumor because it likes to spread as single individual cells that we sometimes miss, um, on froze, especially on frozen. So when the surgeon is trying to decide intraoperatively, do I need to take out a bunch of lymph nodes under this person's arm, which is associated with a lot of post-operative sort of potential complications or is this tumor still as far as we know confined you know to the breast and um it's amazing what it can do i mean it can really find cells to a resolution better than than our eyes ever could so it really is just you know technology there to make us better and and faster um and more effective uh, at what we do um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that scared. And, and I, I, think I still have enough time. So where I'm at in my, at this stage of my career, <laughs> I'm don't have to worry about being replaced <laughs> by the machines for a, for a while. That's
0: um, <laughs> if you had to do all, all over again, would you still be a, a cytopathologist?
1: 117,000% <laughs> without awesome. a doubt. And it's yeah. interesting though, because I did not necessarily plan on cytopathology. As a second fellowship. My original plan was when I was still thinking I wanted to do um, sort of community, non academic practice, was to do the one surgical pathology fellowship that I did um, and then look for jobs. And again, it was just sort of the nature of the market. The market wasn't great. And I knew that I wanted to be in a big city. And those were the places that were the most saturated. And I saw that a lot of the open jobs wanted another subspecialty training. And I happened to like and actually did some like research projects as a resident in, um, uh, cytopathology. And so I was like, okay, you know, I could definitely see myself doing, you know, that one more year of training and that would just make me so much more marketable whether, regardless of whether I decide to go private or, um, academic. And so, um, I'm so grateful that I didn't find this like perfect job at that time. Um, because I wouldn't, I, would not be here uh and so it all kind of worked out and that's just kind of how it works i get asked all the time um by students who who do want to go into pathology um you know residents who are starting to think about fellowships and jobs and um you know what what does it look like you know am i gonna find a job and it's like depending on where they are i'm like you're year, four years five years out things could be vastly different from where they are now so just do your training do your projects put yourself in the best possible position you could be so that when you are ready to start looking you don't have any regrets like oh i wish i had done this or i wish i had you know skipped this like you'll never doing an extra fellowship i mean we kind of look not look down on but it, it, people kind of scratch our heads if you do more than like two fellowships um but You never want to sort of cut out one because you're like, I need to jump in the market earlier because you can regret not having that extra certification that would make you even a more appealing candidate across a broader sort of scope. So I would not
0: change a single thing. What final words of wisdom would you have for the medical student or even pre-med student listening to this thinking about pathology or (laughs) cytopathology?
1: I would say, um, you know, don't believe the sort of preconceived notions that, you know, we're scary people and we don't like, you know, anyone to visit us. Like, I love nothing more than... And we actually have a pre-medical intern program here at Northwestern where we have college kids come. Who think that they're interested in pathology and it's the coolest thing ever because I forget where they are in their training. And I'm like saying all these things and they're like, wait, what, go back, go, go back, back to college days. And it's like, Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but seek out people, you know, who are in the field and ask questions. And this goes for, any specialty. Um, I have students who you know who are interested in ENT and they're like, oh, well, you know, I've heard of this one guy, but I'm afraid to approach him. Like, that's what we're here for. And at academic institution, we are mentors to everyone. Like we're potential mentors to everyone. And you know, if someone's busy, they're busy and they say they're busy, and okay, it's fine. It's not a personal attack. And I get it, it's scary. I was scared as a resident to ask attendings to work on projects with me. So it's Asking a lot of, you know, a college student or a, a very early medical student to just waltz into, you know, surgery or pathology or anesthesia. But, you know, while I can't speak to them. I will say pathologists, for the most part, are very friendly. We're laid back people. Um, we're always looking for ways to sort of um, educate, you know, early. Medical trainees, um as to what it is that we do, even if you don't necessarily go into pathology, it it um benefits everyone, from the patient to the clinician to the pathologist working on the case that um the clinician is educated as to what exactly is happening with their specimen and you know, what the timetable is and why it's it's this many days. So um, you know, read up on it if you you know, if you don't feel quite ready to take that step, if you're not in a position to necessarily you know you don't live by an academic institution or whatever um go online you know there's a lot of great resources there's CAP the College of American Pathology there's ASCP the American Society of Clinical Pathology um you can just google pathology just so you have an idea of what it really is outside of you know CSI or you know some people think i do speech pathology like just just to give yourself a basic understanding of what it is but it's a truly fascinating field um especially when you think of things like molecular pathology which is which is where medical diagnostics is going um especially with hematologic and solid organ malignancies um so we're only going to be playing a bigger and bigger role in patient care moving forward so if you think you might be interested ask your friendly local area pathologist or you know get online and google it out and find out more and read about it and you know, there's so many different ways that you can get involved. We're always working on projects. So I just finished a a case report with a medical student who I think is going into surgery. Um, We have college students, uh, master's level grad students um, involved in projects. So, you know, it's easy to start to build your, your resume. Um, But, you know, be curious, ask questions and, and and take that initiative uh, because it's a great, it's a great field to be in and, and, a lot of us, I can't speak for everyone, are super friendly and always really excited. Um, I don't know what the exact percentage um, across the country of people of, you know, sort of graduating uh, medical students going into pathology, but it's, you know, it's, I think in my own class of 205 students, there were three of us. So it's around like one, two, couple percent. So... And there's a lot of really smart people who end up transferring after going into other things. So just seek us out.
0: All right. There you have it. Again, Dr. Elizabeth Morency, who's been out of training now for five years on her journey into cytopathology, talking about everything that she likes, doesn't like her kind of recommendations for the rest of you who aren't going into pathology, your primary care providers out there with some information to hopefully make your jobs better, her job better, and your patient's life better. If you got a lot of great value out of this podcast today, I would recommend you share it with a friend. I would love for you to share this with your classmate, with your advisors, with your medical school, whoever you can share this with. I would appreciate it. The more listeners we have, the more lives we can affect. And that is my goal here at meded media. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is Meded Media.